0: Hello and welcome to the Talk to Thompsons podcast. I'm Paul Kissen. Today, I'll be talking to the Survivors team at Thompsons, a specialist team dedicated to working with survivors of sexual, physical and mental abuse. The team acts for and with survivors to handle their compensation claims against a variety of defenders from children's homes and local authorities, through to religious orders, schools and sports clubs. Today we will be discussing how the team started, our close and crucial relationship with Scotland's leading abuse charities, the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, the claims process and some of the cases the team are currently handling. I'm delighted to be joined for today's podcast by Patrick Maguire, Laura Connor, Shona Coxage, Daniel Canning and Emma Wheelhouse. Before we get started, perhaps I could allow each of you to introduce yourself and let our listeners know about what your role is at Thompson's.
1: Yeah, I'm Parson Maguire. I'm one of the senior partners here at Thompson Solicitors. I have been a health and safety lawyer all my career. I joined Thompson's because that was a very natural fit for me. It's a firm that stands up for people who require justice. That's what the firm's is all about, that's what I'm all about, and I'm delighted now to be one of the senior partners in the firm.
0: Excellent, Patrick. And Laura?
2: I'm Laura Connor, I'm a partner at Thompson's and I'm head of the survivors team. I've worked at Thompson since leaving university and I've specialised in litigation, health and safety laws, working generally for those who have suffered some form of wrong throughout my career.
3: Excellent, and Daniel? Hi, I am Daniel Canning, joined Thomson Solicitors in 2016, where I started as an admin. I then got my traineeship and completed my traineeship last year. So I'm now one year post-qualified, having worked within the Survivors Department for the past three years. Perfect.
0: And Shona?
4: Hi, I'm Shona Coxage. Um, I'm a solicitor within the Surviving Thomson's. I've been with Thompson since the beginning as well. I did my traineeship in the lung disease team and then moved straight into the survivor team where I've I've been ever since.
0: Thank you, Shona. Emma?
5: Hi hi there. My name is Emma Wheelhouse. I am a trainee solicitor in the survivors team. I started at Thompsons two and a half years ago, which is terrifying, but I was doing admin work, the mesh team before I got the opportunity to join this team, which I absolutely jumped at. And since then, my entire traineeship has been specialised in this work.
0: Thanks for the introductions. Patrick, could you perhaps give us a little bit of background on how the Survivors team started?
1: Certainly. Really what this comes down to is the fact that Thompsons have a very well-earned reputation for being fearless solicitors. We take on the cases that many solicitors shy away from. We're not scared about standing up to big corporations, big organisations and fighting for everyone who we represent. That means that over the years, we've been involved in some very high-profile cases. And when survivors of historic abuse began to recognise that they required support and assistance of solicitors, they came to us as individuals. And also some of the main charities who support those survivors of historic abuse also came to the firm to ask what support we could give. We began to take on cases and the number of cases that we are representing people in relation to grew and grew. We recognised very quickly that to be involved in these cases required a significant degree of expertise, but it also required a different approach to how the lawyers react. Lawyers required a different level of training. Their approach to client relations, their approach to the way they deal with the other side, required to be very specific to these cases. And with that in mind, we set up a survivors team that was and is headed by my colleague Laura Connor and those within the team have grown to those who are all part of this podcast now.
0: How long ago did the the team actually start?
1: We began representing survivors of historic abuse just over three years ago that was when those first survivors first came to us and when we first began discussions with those individual charities that I mentioned and the number of cases that we are involved in has grown and the members of the team have also
0: grown during that time. Right, and how do we make it known to people that they could come to us in the first place?
1: We've been involved in a lot of high-profile matters that has necessarily and obviously attracted a lot of press and media attention. That has resulted in further survivors contacting us. Similarly, survivors often talk to each other and recommend solicitors. And as I mentioned, some charities that we work with also, when they are asked who they may turn to, always say that, Thompson survivors team are the specialist lawyers that may be the choice for them. We are the only dedicated survivors team of solicitors in all of Scotland. No other law firm in Scotland has a dedicated survivors
3: department. The only thing I'd perhaps add would be the the magnitude of the cases involved. So we speak to any of the charities we've, we've spoke to. Uh, Organisations tend to underestimate just how many survivors there are out there. And that includes the Scottish government. will come on to talk about that, I'm sure, um, in more detail about the involvement there. But the reason I think the, the department could be justified was because of how many survivors are out there that require assistance. Three years down the line, there's still so many more out there that we're working to speak to. And again, we'll come on to talk about that in more detail. But it, it was really the magnitude, even from someone that, that started the team, I myself underestimated just how many people out there would have been impacted on some level by the various institutes that we'll come on to talk about.
0: That's great, Daniel. Moving on to Laura Connor. Laura, you're the head of the Survivors Team and I understand there's a very specific approach that needs to be taken when talking to clients due to the obvious sensitivity of the subject matter. Could you perhaps give us a bit of background on that, please?
2: Yeah, sure. And this is very important in relation to how we work and how we deal with, Our clients on a day-to-day basis and how we deal with defenders or any other parties comes back to this trauma-informed approach to how we work. Our focus from the outset has been on securing justice for survivors. We have wanted to ensure that our clients are at the heart of what we do. They are the reason that we do this work and that we're motivated and inspired to work in this very difficult area. Our team of lawyers are what is called trauma-informed. I suppose to many people, they won't know what that actually is or what that means. It means that we've had further specialised training to help us understand the impact of abuse and understand why clients present to us in certain ways. This helps us to have a better relationship with our clients. We can work collaboratively with them to make sure that they are involved in their case from the outset, that they are engaged in the process. that they are aware that they have choices that can be made throughout the case and we make sure that we give them relevant and correct, appropriate advice at each stage of their case to allow them to make their own choices as the case progresses.
0: Where did you get the training on this? Are there specific organisations that provide this type of training?
2: We've had specific training sessions in the form of of any sort of traditional training CPD type courses that many lawyers or medical experts would go on who are dealing with this type of work but in addition to that and quite importantly we attend regular supervision meetings and everyone within the team attends those supervision meetings with counsellors. The reason that that is important is to ensure that we are safe and that we are able to continue doing this work and that we're supported through the cases but also it allows us to continually learn from our client and how we deal with the cases the trauma-informed approach is developing continually through the teams so as we gain more experience and as we deal with different situations and as we discuss those situations with our counsellors and with experts within the charities that we work with then we become better informed as to how best to deal with our clients and the cases
0: generally. That's great. So I guess the trauma-informed approach is something that grows organically, given the fact that it's a fairly new concept, relatively speaking. There might be people who are listening to this podcast who may be thinking about coming forward. What can they expect in terms of their first contact with the firm? What would that look like?
2: Survivors can contact us at any time through various ways they can do our web chat they can call us to speak so they can take initial advice in, in a number of ways and they can do that anonymously quite importantly so if they would just like to make an initial inquiry before giving us their details then they can absolutely do that and we're happy to speak to them at any time about their their situation If they want to take our advice further and they do wish for a case to be opened, then we will take whatever information they are comfortable giving us. And it's important that we don't ask them to provide anything that they're not comfortable in giving us. If, for example, they have already provided advice to the police, then we may only need to take very basic information from them and then we can get a copy of their police statement. One of the key points of being trauma-informed is that we learn not to put our clients into any position which will make them feel vulnerable or is likely to cause them further trauma. That's called the traumatization So we don't put any pressure on our clients to tell us any information which they're not comfortable doing.
0: So essentially we enable the, the clients to go at their own pace through the process. How has the lockdown impacted the initial contact with clients? Has there been any effect on that at all?
5: Well, from my perspective, it hasn't really changed anything. Our team we have always been quite a modern team, which has probably been to our blessing is that straight away we were set up to work remotely and it's not changed anything for us. It has meant that we maybe check in on our clients a little bit more than normal. If a client's on the phone, our conversations can last a little bit longer because more than just the lawyer, you're making sure that person's okay because you know from the outset that that person is slightly more vulnerable. Potentially, we do get a wee bit more calls and you probably do build up a bigger relationship with that client because, you know, you are aware of their vulnerability in that
0: sense. Thanks, Emma. The next thing I'd like to move on to is the issue of the the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry, which is (coughs) obviously a major aspect of this area. Shona, I believe you have something to say about that.
4: Yeah, so I think maybe just... First of all, following on from what Laura and Emma both said, I think it's important to note that the way that our team deals with our clients is very much on an individual basis. You know, it's each case entirely by its own merits. We are fully trauma informed and we have a a really close relationship with our clients. And for us, the, the motivation is finding that bit of justice for each individual. And we've seen the team change massively over the years and we've seen the public perception of survival work and what. The issue of historic abuse in general changes well and part of that has been due to the child abuse inquiry which has been going on since 2015 now actually which is a, a huge amount of time the inquiry is it's set up to deal only with issues relating to abuse in care which is quite different to what we do we deal with historic abuse across a range of, of different organizations and um, they're, they're focusing on the abuse which happened in care what they call their terms of reference, which is their their kind of objectives, have been set out by the Scottish ministers to to look at the nature and extent of abuse of children in care, to identify systemic failures of the duty of care owed to children by the various institutions and organisations who had responsibility for looking after them. And what they will do at the end of the inquiry is recommend changes to practice, to policy, to legislation, which are necessary to protect children who are in care now and going forward. So While the the subject matter is very similar to what we do in the survivor team, the objectives are a little bit different. They're looking at policy and practice going forward, whereas we are focused on justice for the individuals for what's already happened.
0: Will the findings of the inquiry be of practical use to us and our clients in terms of seeking redress for what's happened to them?
4: Yeah, I think that the findings of the inquiry are hugely helpful to us. They've published some of their case study findings already. Examples of that and good examples are the Nazareth House Institutions, which are all over Scotland, Smile and Park as well. They've also looked at charities like Quarriers and Bernardos. That information is now public and is helpful to us. We're not bound by the findings of the inquiry in any way, though we don't have to wait for them to publish findings before we're able to take cases forward which relate to those institutions. So while it is very helpful for us to, to see what information they're able to get and sometimes it's information that we we haven't been able to get but we're, we're certainly not bound by it and we'll, we'll continue to progress cases regardless.
0: So essentially the, the findings of the inquiry could bolster some of our cases and support what we're trying to do.
4: Yeah, I think support is a really good word. I think the the findings will support what what we're already doing and support our cases going forward.
0: Can I just ask a question about, um, you said it only relates to children in care. Does that specifically mean children that have been taken into care or can it mean children who are under the care and supervision of adults as people who are entrusted to adults, for example, in football clubs and other types of organisations?
4: Well, football clubs certainly haven't made up any part of the inquiry so far. The scope of the inquiry in terms of organisations they're looking at has expanded since the beginning. So, for example, at first they were looking at religious organisations that ran places like Nazareth House, voluntary organisations and charities, boarding schools as well, local authority care like foster care. But now, most recently, they're looking at young offenders institutions and detention centres and child migrants as well. So the scope seems to be changing with all the evidence that they're gathering.
0: Right, okay. My final question, I suppose, on the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry in general would be, is there a projected time frame for it, or does it just take as long as it takes, essentially?
4: I think it is pretty much take as long as it takes. I think, you know, it's been running for almost five years now and I'm not aware of a time limit on it. And I think that's because of the the amount of evidence that they're finding as they go on. You know, as as we've seen from other public inquiries like Grenfell, like Hillsborough as well, you know, they can go on for an awfully long time just simply because there is all of that evidence out there to get.
0: And can I ask more broadly to the group, does anyone have anything they'd like to add on any of the the key findings of the inquiry? Anything that's they've noticed that might be of use to our clients. Patrick?
1: When the public inquiry was set up, there was some concerns expressed about the limited nature of the inquiry in the sense that it was only related to children who suffered abuse in care. People asked, survivors wondered why it shouldn't be looking at far more wider settings and indeed when the inquiry was set up there was also a reasonably exhaustive list of the institutions that they initially intended looking into. The concerns remain to a large extent as to why it's only in care. People ask you've raised the issue about football clubs, what about sports, what about other areas and settings where abuse took place. It looks like there's going to be no movement on that And it may be that demands will continue for further public inquiries in the years ahead. For my part, I think there's there's quite a compelling argument for the Scottish Government to fund and set up a public inquiry uh, in relation to the abuse in sport. They passed responsibility on in the football setting, certainly to the SFA for their independent investigation. We're waiting to see the outcome of that. But whatever is the case, as we've learned in the past from others, at instances of public inquiries compared to private investigations that nothing compares to a full public forensic inquiry where people are examined by members of the judiciary in public glare of an open uh, courtroom. So I think those demands will continue. The inquiry have certainly nevertheless extended the list of institutions that they're looking at, and that can only be a good thing. Coming back to the point you asked about what is in care, It effectively comes down to that old Latin phrase in loco parentis, that if the institution was at a point in time to some extent acting in the position of a parent, providing whether it's permanent or temporary residential care, that's when they fall into the category of institution and setting that the public inquiry would look at. So that's why it covers boarding schools. That's why it covers... Uh, young offenders institutions, that's why it covers some of the um, religious boarding uh, institutions too.
0: I mean, uh, my impression is that people listening must think to some extent, surely a public inquiry makes sense, why would there be any resistance to that? What is the resistance to a public inquiry actually taking place?
1: There was no resistance to a public inquiry per se, it's simply that questions were asked as to why it wasn't wider than it is? Why was it restricted to in care? Why initially was the list of institutions so limited? The point is that I think people would would like there to be a wider public inquiry. And as I said, certainly I think there's a compelling case for there to be, uh, if not this public inquiry, another public inquiry to look at abuse in sport.
0: Thanks, Patrick Daniel. Moving on to discuss the defenders. In these types of cases, obviously there are many and varied. Could you perhaps give us a bit of background on what a defender in this type of case is and some of the defenders that we have had to deal with so far?
3: Absolutely. The approach that Laura spoke about, the trauma informed approach, is one that I think is unique to Thompson solicitors and the, the survivors department. Unfortunately, we don't see many solicitors acting on their behalf. The other side acting in a trauma-informed approach. They very much want to deal with this as you would see another, perhaps you know, a road traffic accident, an RTA case. We are looking at cases that involve going back decades ago, where people who are responsible for the abuse may be deceased, people who kept the records or, or were witness to the abuse are no longer available or, or cooperating. But certainly, that's where the inquiry that Shona spoke about has has helped somewhat but we can't be over-reliant on that evidence too much. The defenders on the other side seem to think that, and this is just generally, I wouldn't criticise any one particular defender or firm, but there seems to be a forgetfulness that this, whilst there is a claim at the centre of it, is a survivor, someone who has experienced a great ordeal of trauma, Sometimes it may be one incident, sometimes it may be a number of incidents over a short time or a long period of time. We're talking about people who have never had the platform or the ability to speak out about their abuse, and now they're doing so, but in asking them to or, or allowing them to, they, we're asking them to cast their minds back 30, 40 years ago when you were a child. It doesn't simply work the same as a, a normal case. If you think about it, I, I use the example, an RTA case. In RTA cases, you have someone that was driving the car, undoubtedly you'll have insurance in most cases, so there's a paper trail there. In some instances, you'll have police reports, witnesses, medical evidence that's all readily available or or available within a short time. And again, we know because of the limitation periods that these cases ordinarily have to be brought around within three years unless exceptional circumstances apply. With survivors' cases, the, the Scottish Government removed that time bar period meaning that there's there's no longer a three-year time period from the incident happening. You can bring around your case provided the abuse happened or continued to happen after the 26th of September 1964. Unfortunately, cases that fall before that date remain time-barred, although I understand the Scottish Government are looking to address some of that. Many cases can now be brought forward if they, if they happened after the 26th of September 1964. Can I
0: ask, is the limitation, has that been removed in respect of what we call civil liability as well as criminal liability? Or are these always only civil cases?
3: The legislation that changed and came into force in November 2017 only applies to civil cases. And again, it's quite specific about the types of cases that can apply to whilst the, the scope for abuse is wide again it attaches is quite strict in the liability that it can attach so a challenge that we're facing in, in many of these cases is attaching liability to organizations such as local authorities where a child was placed in care of perhaps a holy order the local authorities up until this point have wanted to distance themselves from responsibility and liability and are very much of the the opinion that once they place a child in care of a a third part of the organisation, that that's where their responsibility and liability ends. It's one of the many legal issues that we're looking to challenge, hopefully through litigation, and we're confident that we can refer to other cases and hopefully the decision will go in our favour.
0: And Laura, if I can ask, obviously in in a lot of these cases, the defender might be quite aggressive in the way that a a defender in a road traffic case might be. How do we deal with defenders in those types of situations?
2: That's a good question and very topical. And that was one point I wanted to make, along with one other, if you don't mind. We've got a few cases ongoing in court at the moment, and this is allowing us to see just quite clearly what the defenders are, are intending to do with these cases and how they are going to deal with them. So, if I give you one example from one of the cases, this probably gives quite a good flavour of what we are dealing with. And it absolutely is the case that the defender's agents appear to be dealing with these cases as what they call the norm. They are a personal injury case, and so they will just deal with them in the same way that they deal with all personal injury cases. This specific example in one of these cases relates to instruction of medical experts, so specifically to our team we have asked our medical experts to accept instructions on the basis that they will also take questions from the defenders solicitors. That is to try and avoid the client having to go to various different medical appointments, which is again the norm in a personal injury action. Through the court process, the defenders said, right, well, we want to get our own medical report. We said to them, could you please consider asking questions of our medical expert We have done a lot of investigation to make sure that they are appropriately qualified. They are entirely independent, as all medical experts require to be. And they said, no, we're, we're not willing to do that. Our client is entitled to obtain their own medical reports. So we said, well, OK, that's fine. We discussed it with our client. They were very anxious about that. They were anxious about having to go through all of the history of the case again, when it perhaps wasn't very necessary for them to have to do that. And they said, right, OK, well, we will do it. But please, could you just ask the expert to give me a framework of questions so that I know what to expect? And the client had also done some research online, as had we, and it wasn't apparent that this was an expert who normally worked with survivors so we said to the defenders well our client will engage he's willing to do that he's not very comfortable with it but could he have a framework of questions so that he can prepare and he also wanted to speak with his own counsellor about that to make sure that he was ready for the meeting that was just refused and there were arguments that went back and forth several times about why that was necessary and why it was a reasonable request and if our client hadn't said okay that's fine you know I just need to get this done with it would have ended up in front of a judge to make the decision as to whether or not their medical experts should provide a framework of questions in advance of a meeting. It seemed to be getting to that ridiculous stage. I think that goes to show the importance of being trauma informed. We would never ask our clients to go to a medical appointment that they weren't comfortable with or that they didn't know what they were going to whereas the defenders agents just said no this is It's normal in these types of cases. Your client must go. And I will quote from one of their emails where they said, Your client chose to engage in this process and so must accept whatever it is we ask them to do as part of a normal personal injury case. So these are the types of things that we are trying to change. But I think the only way that we can do it is through the continued litigation, which we're trying to do just now.
0: It certainly sounds like a very heartless attitude Mm -hmm. from some of these defenders. I suppose I think of the phrase that was used earlier, the idea of re-traumatization. I guess a lot of these clients could be re-traumatized by having to go through these processes. Do you think, Laura, that it's actually a deliberate tactic on the part of some defenders to put clients in the position where they think, I would rather just drop this than have to go through the pain of reliving a lot of these experiences?
2: That's a very good question, and I wonder if I am allowed to make such comments about fellow professionals. That's an argument that would appear to be correct if it were to be made. I don't know what their reasoning is. It may be fairer to say that they have not had the training that we have had. They don't deal with our clients. They don't know what is important to them as individuals. And so they are dealing with this as they would any other personal injury action because effectively that is what it is. I would encourage all defenders, agents, as well as you know anyone that's dealing with these cases to undergo the appropriate training to allow them to deal with the cases in just a more sensitive way. Being kinder to the individuals that are involved, they have been through enough before having to go through this litigation as well in order to get some form of justice and compensation that they deserve.
0: That makes sense. And I suppose, as you point out, any defender is only acting in the best interests of their client by doing whatever they can do within the law to help their case. On
2: the point of defenders, there is a lot of media attention around football cases, for example. We deal with cases where individuals have been abused through a variety of situations and homes, institutions, sporting organisations, schools, their own homes. Although the media can be attracted to the football cases, they are very important to us, but so are all of the other cases which we have. And it's very important that any person who's been abused in any environment comes to speak to us to get advice, because there are a range of ways that we can attempt to pursue claims for compensation for them, which Emma will come on to discuss. But they shouldn't be put off because they weren't abused in what they might consider to
3: be the correct setting. Just to expand on what Laura said, there is a page on Thompson's website that you can access where survivors or anyone interested can see the organizations that we're dealing with currently at the moment. One of the challenges that we'll face undoubtedly in these cases will be the availability of evidence. I'm sure Emma is gonna come on to talk about Murov and how big a part of that plays in these cases. So it's important that anyone who thinks about coming forward, just as Laura said, don't worry about whether or not it was in the right setting. That's for us to ascertain, get the necessary information and tell people what type of claim they may be able to pursue. But more importantly, if people come forward, whilst we deal with cases on an individual basis, there is the opportunity there to be a part of something much bigger. And certainly, when you think back to three years ago, anyone that was working within the team, um, or even two years ago, people were coming forward for the first time about certain institutes and organisations and that was the first time we were hearing about ones and the, the only reason that cases can succeed is, is through availability of evidence and some of that evidence relies on what we call corroboration, where it is supported by another person's account not necessarily eyewitness testimony, but through other people coming forward and, and sharing similar experiences by either the same abuser within the same time frame or the same institute, it certainly shows a a period of abuse within a home and so that's why it's important that people if they have experienced abuse in any kind of form go towards the thompson's website and as i said you can see the institutions that we're currently dealing with that list similar to the scottish child's abuse inquiry is, is always growing even if the, the institute you were abused in isn't on that list and, and by all means please contact us because you never know you might be the first person of many to come forward, but it always takes that first person to come forward. And it certainly always takes that second person to support the first person. which which has been a a great deal of success in in a number of our cases.
0: Thanks, Daniel. And I believe Emma is going to elaborate on the Murov doctrine that you mentioned and other things. So so Emma, could you perhaps give Mm -hmm. us a bit of an overview of the claims process, how a claim starts, how it progresses and how hopefully it comes to a conclusion?
5: I think the simplest way to to explain our process, because I think it's easy as lawyers just to say, oh, this is like any other civil litigation. But in actual fact, um, if someone is listening to this and they wonder, you know, really what would would I be getting myself into if I I take that? Because for our clients, it's different because to them, it's an absolute leap of faith. For someone picking up the phone, putting a message in, sending an email, we can be the first people that they ever speak to. And that's different from when Daniel's speaking about a road traffic accident. It's, it's a different kind of environment because for us, we could have somebody exposing an incredibly vulnerable part of themselves in order to to try and get some justice and closure that they you know, so rightly deserve. So for them, it'll be one of the most scary and, and daunting experiences that they're ever going to have so putting myself into their shoes and listening to this kind of podcast to understand what that journey will be the first thing I'd say is this is not easy it's a long process and there's a number of different options because of the variety of different defenders because of the variety in each case being taken on its own merits the case can fall into and that's our job is to, to put it into that category and understand what it falls for so from a perspective if we're looking into whether or not we can take a civil case forward for somebody. The first steps for us is that we try and get some information from them. And then we start the evidence gathering process, which quite often can be the most challenging part. And that's really down to the historic nature of these cases, is that you're battling against time because records can be destroyed. You know, you're really trying to dig back into the past to see what you can bring back to have the strongest case for that individual that you possibly can. And evidence falls into a variety of different things. The most straightforward being records of somebody being somewhere, whether that be a school or whether that be in a care home situation, or even for in some of our football cases, record that person was on that team. Everyone we try and find a fingerprint of somebody being there. And then it comes down to different types of evidence. And that's when Daniel had touched upon is the Murov doctrine. That's traditionally is a criminal law term. And it's quite simply put is if The case started when a young woman was sexually assaulted in a workplace, but nobody witnessed the assault. But by speaking out about it, another number of individuals came forward of different women who had all been assaulted by the same person. And because of that, they all came together and could support each other. And even though none of these incidents were witnessed by anybody else, it created a pattern of evidence.
0: May I interject there and ask that perhaps what happened in the... I know it was a criminal matter, but is that what happened in the Harvey Weinstein case, that other women corroborated each other in that way? Different legal system, but is it the same type of idea?
5: Yeah, it is. It's the same idea where it's in the criminal system where there's one perpetrator that has committed a number of assaults that have such close circumstances and repeated patterns that we're able to see. On balance, this is likely to have happened to so many more individuals. And it's through this area of law that we're trying to bring it into civil law and change this, because this wouldn't have normally been a concept that you'd have used before. But just given passage of time, some of these perpetrators have died. And the only way to really answer the questions is to say, whether well, we have 20 individuals that can all come forward and see the same thing happened. So it really changes the way you think of evidence for these kind of cases.
0: Has there been acceptance of that doctrine in civil cases yet?
5: Not yet. That's something Maura has already touched on as well, is to say we have a few cases that are litigated and a couple of those cases will really rely on the move of doctrine will be if these cases get to the stage where they're reaching proof then it will be something that has to, to be brought it's certainly something we have always tried to, to strengthen always ask our clients if they're happy to be witnesses for others so it's something that will probably within the next few months even we'll know if that's something we can continue to rely upon
0: but is there more of an overview in the claims process that you're going to go into here? yeah just,
5: just, a, just a wee bit yeah so after we have that the point where we've we're, confident that we have enough evidence for the case, the cases are intimated to the defenders. In a case if it's been a new defender, especially when the team first started, we intimated these claims anonymously, which very much meant is that all we were doing was notifying the defenders that there was a case here. No details of the individuals were given, no details of the assaults or the abuse itself, it was just to say we have a person who's came forward for this period of time, can you pass this to your insurers or solicitors? And that meant that we could quite confidently, once the claim is passed to the insurers and passed on to solicitors in most cases, that we can quite confidently say that this is a secure line of confidentiality and creates a more line of confidence. And sometimes that can result in the actual survivors and clients being a little bit more comfortable before we pass on a lot of the evidence. And then the next stages can be is that we try and have mm-hmm. a more open dialogue with the defenders and the other solicitors in these cases. In some cases that has been quite effective. It could potentially result in more kind of out-of-court settlements because I think a lot of people think that when they first start this process that they will have their date in court when the reality is the vast majority of these cases won't reach that stage and that's probably for their benefit. There's some that will because we have to test these areas of law and we have to have questions answered that possibly can only be answered in the courtroom with an independent judge to, to actually answer them for us but The mass majority is much more of an open dialogue with defenders than, I would
3: say, is the norm. Defenders, when we first started that, were resistant to that kind of working framework. Many, especially local authorities, once you pass details of a claim to them, the first step would be for either if the the department is big enough and has their own self-insurance, then they have claims handlers. If not, then it goes to an external insurance who covered the period that the abuse is subject to what we noticed was quite a a resistance to to our way of working. But we were adamant, taking a a trauma-informed approach, that that was how we were going to do it. slowly but gradually, I think the defenders, because we're now coming into contact with them more and more, now know what to expect from us. We don't necessarily have to take the anonymous step if we're aware of, as Emma said, if it's already someone we're dealing with. But if we're intimating new claims, maybe the same defender but a new type of claim, we, we would still take that anonymous step. And, and now defenders have got round to our way of working. In that respect, there are other aspects, unfortunately, that are still yet to come round to our way of working. But it, again, it just shows the, the steps that's taken by the survivor team and, and how we are so adamant in our position that we, we can convince others to work, get round to our way of working, um, step by step.
0: And, and is it difficult, Daniel, to identify the correct insurance company in a lot of these cases?
3: It is. Unfortunately, it just comes back to everything we spoke about due to the passage of time and the availability of records. It's not as straightforward as just opening up a spreadsheet. And again, there has to be a bit of compromise from us on some occasions to provide a bit more detail so that that can be ascertained who the, the, the insurer is. But again, we're very cautious about if we ever have to go beyond an anonymous letter but not quite a full detailed letter of claim. We ensure that all the details that are provided are still in line with their way of thinking, that it's handled in an anonymous basis, that if there is one person at the other side that's dealing with it, as opposed to an, e- an email going into a, a general inbox for anyone to pick up and read, we be very careful to make sure that it goes to a particular person and that it's that person's responsibility to deal with it and, and be the, the point of contact for us going forward.
0: Thanks. Now, uh, Emma, I'm conscious that you... We're still going through the overview. If there's anything else that you want to add on that, please continue.
5: Yeah, the, the only other thing I would I would really add for it here is that, as I said, there is not for everyone there will be a civil case option, but there are other avenues that we can consider. In some circumstances where an individual was perhaps abused by a family member and the perpetrator has since died, then but there may have been a report to Police Scotland. In those circumstances, we can also consider making an application to the Criminal Injuries Compensation Authority, which is a government scheme which is set up for anyone that was a victim of crime. And that follows the same kind of idea of a civil case where it's the same standard of proof, which is balance of probability. Um, And sometimes we're able to support our clients in making those applications as well. And sometimes the hardest cases for us as well are those ones that fall with that time bar, whether it be the, the 26th of September 1964. In those cases we move on to the the government redress scheme which is currently in the advanced payment stage and that's for anybody that's got a terminal illness or is over the age of 68 then we can assist with making an application there which is a recognition from the Scottish government that this did happen beyond that limitation date of 1964 and that's something we can all speak to somebody about as well. The biggest thing as well is We always will try and support somebody if someone does come to us and it might not be circumstances that we're able to help because of the support that we've got from some amazing charities we are able to put support in place and sometimes for some individuals that really all they really were looking for is just help you know someone to listen to them Um, and those circumstances will also make sure that they have support and if that's something that they could actually benefit from more
0: great well thank you patrick Laura, Daniel, Shona and Emma for joining me today And thank you too to all our listeners for tuning in If you feel anything we've discussed today is relevant to you And you'd like to speak to someone about this As the team explained, they are specially trained, trauma-informed solicitors Who treat all inquiries with the strictest of confidence If you require their assistance, please contact us on 0141 566 Six, eight, seven, eight. You can also find us on Facebook or tweet us at Talk2Thompsons. I'm pleased to let our listeners know that the team have agreed to come back to answer some of your most frequently asked questions in part two. If you found today's podcast useful and would like to be kept informed about future podcasts, then please click subscribe. We look forward to welcoming you all again next week and thank you.